0: church, you realize we're gathering to worship the God who tells every lightning bolt where it should go. Isn't that a cool verse? Isn't that a cool line? Every lightning bolt. Everything about our world, about our universe, God is in total control of, and we get to call him king. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Uh, Today, we celebrate the day when that king who tells every lightning bolt where it should go, who tells every snowflake where it should fall, Who commands every molecule of your body. Today we celebrate the day that He came into Jerusalem to die on the cross. This is Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to Mark chapter 11. And let's take a look at this King who entered on our behalf. Mark chapter 11. We're going to be Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So it's kind of cool because it's Mark 1, 1, 1, 1. Mark 1, 11, Wait, Mark eleven, one through eleven. Mark one, 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 one. So, here we go. If that helps you, it was not going to help you. It's going to confuse you. But that's where we are. Mark one, one through eleven. If you don't have a Bible, you should see a blue one underneath the chair in front of you. Go ahead and open that one up with us. Uh, take that blue one home. Give it to somebody. Give that one away. Uh, we would love to be part of that. Maybe uh, God has laid somebody on your heart to invite Easter Sunday. Uh, as Darren's been telling us, that is the, the, uh, uh, this upcoming Sunday is Easter Sunday, invite a friend. That is the easiest time to in, uh, invite a friend. Everybody knows about Easter, invite him to, to Trinity, give him a Bible, uh, that would be great. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, looks like everybody's turned there. Would you bow with me? Let's pray over our time together. Father God... The one who tells every lightning bolt where it should go, the one who controls every molecule of our bodies, every atom in the universe calls you master. Father, we come to you and we desire to see clearly who this king is who would come to Jerusalem to die for his people. Father, we want to see him clearly. Father, we want Him to command us, to tell us about our lives, about who He is, to show us the kind of King He is. And so, Father, we pray as we dive into Your Word, as we see our King on the donkey, Father, may You show us what You want us to know. Anything else, Father, anything that comes from me, my mind, my philosophy, my my ideas, Father, these people don't want to hear that. And so, Father, anything inaccurate anything false anything from my mind may they may that those words just fall away and may we see clearly who jesus is we thank you for him we thank you for his willingness it's in jesus's name we pray amen amen okay um i have a book that i like to take um couples through when they come to me for premarital counseling i like to take them through a book called Uh, catching foxes and there's one very important chapter in this book one of the most important chapters and the title is this getting a grip on your expectations for marriage You need a grip on your expectation for marriage. Because we all bring different ideas, different baggage, different expectations into all of our relationships. And so that chapter breaks down some certain areas where we might have differences of our expectations when we become married to one another. Uh, It breaks them down like this. Expectations for the ceremony. And so the couple is supposed to go read the book separately and say what they expect out of the ceremony and try to get on the same page. For instance... You're supposed to go from 0 to 5, number of these 0 to 5, 5 being high expectations, 0 being low. The wedding day will revolve around me. Do you have that expectation? Or expectation for the ceremony. I expect that the events will start on time. The first marriage I ever did, the bride was two hours late. I started having that thought. I started having that conversation. Hey, dude, this lady bailed on you. We need to figure something out. But sure enough, he said, oh, that's just her. That's just her. So expectations for the honeymoon. There will be no serious marital conflict. Zero to five. There will not be any suffering on the honeymoon. Zero to five. My spouse, zero to five, what's your expectation? My spouse will be really thrilled to be married to me. And he's doing this, he's taking couples through this, and he knows sometimes they have different expectations. Sometimes on the honeymoon, somebody shows up and goes, oh, what have I done? That's part of life. How do you deal with that? What's your expectations there? Expectations for life, moving after the wedding. Our home will be clean and tidy. Marital conflict. All those things. We know this. Even if you're not married, you know conflict happens. When you bring certain expectations into a relationship and they don't get met, that brings conflict. That brings conflict. He wrote this chapter because he's counseled many couples who let unmet expectations harm their marriage. And he writes this, Expectations impact our marriages. They shape how we approach and view marriage as well as how we react when our married life starts unraveling before our eyes. We might expect to feel a certain way about our mate. That's true of marriage. If you're married, you've found out that that's true. But this is also true in other areas of our life and this is doubly true for expectations we bring into our relationship with Jesus. I think I don't think the author would mind if we tweak his paragraph a little bit and say it this way. Expectations affect our faith. They can shape how we approach and view Jesus, as well as how we react when our life starts unraveling before our eyes. We might expect to feel a certain way about our savior. What expectations do you bring to your relationship with Jesus? Do you expect Jesus to make you rich? Do you expect Jesus to make you comfortable? Do you expect your relationship with Jesus to bring you all your desires and preferences? Do you believe, do you expect in your relationship with Jesus that he will make you sinless? Act our faith. Because all these things, being rich, being comfortable, maybe He will bring this to your life. But probably not. See, He hasn't promised to bring us anything like money or comfort. or He hasn't promised to bring us a spouse. He hasn't promised any of these things. What He has promised and what we can expect is that He deals with our most urgent and important needs. He might do all these other things, but what He has promised is to bring us what we need most. We could discard all other good things that Jesus has done for us, and He has promised, since He will uphold what He has promised, He will defeat our most notorious and devastating enemies. He will bring us what we need most. He will deal with sin and death and hell for His people. That is the most important thing Jesus can do for us. That is what we can expect Him to deliver. And everything else in life is icing on the cake. And so what we're going to see today in the triumphal entries, we're going to see a crowd of people around Jesus expecting things that Jesus is not going to deliver. And we're going to see in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem what He promises to do for those who love Him, what we can't expect. So let's read together. Let's read Mark, big number 11, little number 1 to little, to little number 11. Let's see these expectations. Here it goes. It goes like this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went out and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? What are you doing untying the colt? As it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Expectations for the coming King. In the book of Mark, we've seen all kinds of expectations of Jesus. Jesus is going to be... this This is who they thought Jesus was. This is what they expected out of the Messiah. Remember this? He's going to be the Rambo Messiah. Have a bandana and a machine gun and take care of all the Romans. That's who they expected of Jesus. And that's what we see... Here. So here's the scene. It is Passover, the most holy time in the Jewish calendar. It was so important to the Jewish people that thousands and thousands and ten thousands of Jews from all over the ancient world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. The streets were packed, every house was full. The temple was bursting at the seams. Pilgrims coming in and out of Jerusalem all hours of the day and night. And they came to celebrate the time where God delivered Israel from a foreign nation. They came to celebrate the time where God took His people from slavery in Egypt and delivered them And this is a time of of extra-religious fervor. And this is a time where we don't have to just celebrate something that happened a long time ago. Right now, God, we have a foreign power in Israel now. Let's celebrate when God delivered us from a foreign nation. And let's hope and pray that this is the time He's going to do it again. He raises the dead. They've seen and they've heard. Jesus has given sight to the blind. He has fed people out of thin air. Could this be the guy to kick out the Romans? And the other Gospels say everyone was in a fervor, not just about the Passover, but about Jesus. The other Gospels say have the Pharisees say in this, the whole world is going out to see Jesus. And so, their hopes and their expectations are riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And they sing the song of the pilgrims. Hosanna! Which means, God, save! Save! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. To do the Lord's business at Passover where we celebrate Him destroying a foreign power. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our kingdom of our great father, David. Blessed is God because He's going to restore Israel to its greatness. Not only do we have religious expectations, not only do we have salvation expectations in that crowd. Kick the Romans out. Get them, Jesus! Go get them! We have royal expectations. They took their cloaks off. They laid them on the donkey as Jesus' saddle. And then they took their cloaks off and they placed it on the road in front of Jesus. King's... Chapter 9 says this, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then, in haste, every man of, of them took his garment and put it under uh, under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. This is a sign that the crowd is saying, Jesus has a throne in Jerusalem. He's our king. He's coming. He's going to kick those Romans out. He is going to reestablish the fantastic, the magnificent, the wonderful kingdom of our father David. He's back. And not only is he the king, they took, they said, Oh, here he comes, here he comes. And they ran off into the fields and they got leafy branches, palm branches, and some of them waved them in the air, and some of them put them in front of Jesus as he rode. His donkey. 200 years before that, there was, another, there was another fierce national power. The Seleucid Empire was in Jerusalem. They had conquered. And the Jewish hero came and he drove them out. And to celebrate, they all waved palm branches. The, the God delivered us from the Seleucids. And so Jesus is coming down on His donkey. And everyone said, now is the time. We expect the Romans to be gone. This week, He's going to do it during Passover. Grab your little American flags. You know how we wave those at parades? Grab your flag of the Kingdom of Israel. Grab your palm branch and wave it. The King is coming to fight the Romans. And so, what you have, the expectations of this crowd. They see Jesus coming. They've heard Jesus what he's going to be doing. They've heard what he's done. They imagine what he's going to be doing. They expect. restore the power and victories of King David. And he will, be, he will restore the wealth of King Solomon. And he will restore the obedience to the law of Moses. And he will accomplish all these things by killing the Romans. That's their expectation. They will. He will destroy Rome and He will expand our kingdom to fill the whole world. Think about how wealthy we will be. Think about how peaceful we will have it. Think about how comfortable we will have it. We saw last week, this is the expectation of the dis- disciples. Jesus tells them, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to rise again. And James and John come up and they go, hey, Let me sit on your right and Him sit on your left in your kingdom. That's their expectation too. He's going on a physical throne. And this crowd that is singing His praises, this crowd that expects great things on the battlefield from this man, in a few days, this crowd is going to be utterly disappointed. they will discover he has not come to deliver his people during Passover like Moses. He delivers his people during Passover like the lamb that was slaughtered. Passover celebrates a time when the angel of death came over Israel and anyone who did not sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood over your doorposts your firstborn died. It celebrates that. The angel of God passed over his people. The wrath of God passed over his people. Victory parade through the streets of Jerusalem. Instead of the air being filled with songs of victory, in a few days, Jesus will be marched through those same streets. He'll be dragged to Golgotha carrying his own cross. And the air will not be filled with sounds of victory. Songs of victory. A crowd will assemble to be mocking him. He's spitting on him. Instead of a royal reception, the King is coming. He's the King of Israel. Instead of a physical throne and a royal reception and a golden crown, in a few days, Jesus will have a crown of thorns pounded into His forehead in mockery that anyone could think this was King of the Jews. Utterly disappointed. Instead of destroying The Roman army. He will give Himself over to the Romans to mock and flog and spit on and nail to a cross. This crowd, and I think we could say the disciples themselves, in a few days will be utterly and totally disappointed. But, they are disappointed not because their expectations are too high, but they will be disappointed because their expectations of Jesus are too low. It's as if my daughter Charlie just turned four and we had birthday presents and it's as if she got this nice big present and she opened it up and inside she found a check for $10 million dollars But she was expecting a Barbie doll, so she was disappointed. That's like the crowd. Charlie's expectations would not be when infinite joy is offered us. Like like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. He says, we are too easily pleased. And I think he'd allow me to twist it a little bit. We are too easily pleased and our expectations of our Savior are always far too low. Jesus is about to do things for that crowd and for us that they could never hope to imagine. The crowd expects Jesus to defeat earthly enemies. Jesus comes through it's almost as if he's shouting, raise your e- the expectations for who I will destroy. Rome? Jesus Amen. Do you know those? You ever played with those? I played with those. Judah's about to inherit those when he gets old enough. That's all the inheritance he's ever gonna get. You better enjoy it. But it's like those, it's like Jesus saying, You're scared of those little ten army men. Well, I have come to destroy your real enemy. Rome, raise your expectations. You see, our true enemies are much deadlier and much scarier than Rome. If the crowd understood, and if you and I understand who our real enemy is, we would beg, plead, and plead to Jesus to destroy our real enemies. You see, we have real enemies who think about your downfall constantly. We have real enemies that do not fight battles on some distant battlefield. Romans fight battles so that they can control the next 40 years of your life. We have enemies who want to take away your eternity. Romans, The crowd has no idea. Who our true enemy is. The crowd has no idea who Jesus is going to destroy. Raise your expectations. And let me tell you this, if you understand who our true enemy is that Jesus has defeated all that other stuff like wealth and comfort and security, all that other stuff that we expect of Jesus, that will fall away and we'll say, we don't need that. Look what Jesus has done for us. We have a true enemy. Our true enemy is sin. Sin. And here's what Jesus tells us. You and I, we cannot escape the clutches of sin. You can escape the Roman army. You can. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Let me tell you how this enemy stalks us. This enemy knows us. This enemy is not around the corner. He's inside us. Let me tell you how vicious this enemy is. Early Christianity had a group of of believers called the Desert Fathers. They had some wacky ideas and some okay ideas, but these Desert Fathers wanted to commit themselves to holiness. They wanted to commit themselves to reading the Word and prayer and holiness. And so they removed themselves from society and they went into the desert and lived in caves all by themselves. You know what they told us? They said, man, isolating yourself like that takes away a lot of sins, but you know what we found? When we went into our caves, the sin of lust was behind every rock. We can't, if we can't defeat the, the, our enemy of sin by closing ourselves off in a cave... Christian who fights, who battles sin in your life, let this be an encouragement. Paul says this, I know that nothing good lives in me that is my flesh. Nothing good in Paul? Paul was the first missionary. God used Paul to start the church. Nothing good lives in Paul? He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. Instead, I keep on doing the evil I do not want to do. Do you feel that way? Who else feels that way? And if you don't feel that way, you're deep in self-righteousness. You need to repent and understand the battle for sin. Paul says, this enemy sin is so deep down that even the Apostle Paul says, every time I turn around, sin is right there. My enemy sin is unrelenting. And this enemy sin destroys everything around us. This is what Isaiah says about sin. The earth mourns and withers due to our sin. The world fades and withers due to our sin. The exalted people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants because of our sinfulness. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. Families attacked by sin. Churches attacked by sin. Hearts attacked by sin. Marriages attacked by sin. Communities destroyed by sin, countries destroyed by sin, and not just the things outside, but we've all felt this sin, our enemy sin loves to destroy us. David, adulterer, murderer, or indignation, there is no health in my bones because of my sin and a heavy, as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. It's not enough that our enemy sin wants to destroy all those around us and everything around us. Our enemy sin wants to destroy everything about us. And the worst part, sin threatens to eternally separate us from God. Isaiah 59, but your sins have made a separation between you and your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear Don't tell me Jesus came for a bigger problem than that There's no bigger problem than I am threatening to threaten to be eternally separated from god due to my sinful heart Sin has entered into the world, and because sin has entered into the world, death has spread to all men, because all men have sinned. And so, death stalks us. Death, let me say that, let me say it a different way. Death stalks sinners. So you and me, he stalks. It's like a homing missile. He is searching for sinners. I'm gonna go over here so I'm not pointing at anybody in particular. I'm gonna go over here. Z- boom! Sin- death cannot help himself. Like a monster following our every move and whispering in our ears, soon I will devour you and everyone you care about. Do we have a bigger enemy than that? Feed the biggest enemy of all. They work together to feed hell. This greatest monster, his his desire, his hunger is unsatiable, insatiable. He wants to devour and to devour and to devour. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, he says, about the unrighteous, he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We just did that passage in our Bible time at home. Interesting conversation to have with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Needed conversation, but interesting one. pastor, talking about hell, that's not very PC. People don't like it. Jesus speaks of hell more than heaven. Are you with me? Real, and He doesn't want you to go there. He speaks more on hell. He doesn't speak a lot about the Roman army. He speaks a lot on hell because He knows how devastating it is. He knows how terrible it is. And He will conquer it. He calls it a fiery, unquenchable furnace. It is the absence of all grace and mercy of God. Anything good in your life has come from the grace and mercy of God. A good sandwich. A good friend. Having children. All these things the wicked, the most wicked among us can have because of the grace and mercy of God. All of that gone. Nothing good. He calls it a fiery furnace. Unquenchable fire. Jesus said it's so terrible. This is supposed to wrap our minds about how terrible it is. Jesus said God designed it for the devil and his demons. It's not terrible. It's designed for those dudes. Don't go there. bitterness and hatred towards God. Jesus will call hell Gehenna, which is the ever-burning garbage dump outside of Jerusalem filled with dead, the dead bodies of the poor and the criminal ever chewed upon by dogs and worms crowd's hoping that their their expectations are for the Roman army? Raise your expectations. We have greater needs than the Roman army. Let me face the Roman sword and not hell. Let my children face the sword of the Romans and not hell. Jesus, save us! They're using the right words for the wrong reasons. Save us, O God! And the crowd... Their expectations for how Jesus saves. They need to raise their expectations for how Jesus saves. We need something else. And Jesus, maybe subtly, Jesus gives this message to the crowd. A king comes into a city in two ways. On a horse. If he's on a horse... You better be ready. He's come for action. He's come for war. You come on a horse or you come on a donkey. And you come for peace. And we see that Jesus wanted a particular kind of donkey. He says, a colt on which no one has ridden. In the Old Testament, you get animals. If you're going to use animals for the temple purposes or sacred purposes, it must be an animal that has never been ridden, never been used for anything else. Its sole purpose is for something holy. And so we see Jesus, He is pulling the lamb to be sacrificed. And He is sacrificed in this way Because the only way for Jesus to defeat sin and death and hell for us is not with a sword, but He is offered to them as a sacrifice. Jesus, in order to destroy our monsters, He offers Himself to be devoured by these monsters, and He is their poison. He is swallowed up by these monsters and will poison them for the faithful. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5. For for our sake He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God died. It It cannot handle swallowing the perfect Son of God. Can't handle it. Sin died when Jesus offered Himself up in our place. Romans 4.25 He was delivered to death for our sins. Delivered to death. Pulled through the streets on a donkey. The sacrificial lamb was given over to death. Death swallowed it whole in the tomb. And as the tomb swallowed Jesus, death Died for believers. As Jesus hung on the cross, He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? According to the 22nd Psalm, hell is the ultimate place of being forsaken by God. As we said last week, and as hell chewed on Jesus' body, hell was poisoned for all time for believers. Hell is dead for us. For three days, that poison of the good, righteous King, the Son of God, the poison spread and coursed through the veins of these monsters who are our true enemies. Until these enemies were utterly destroyed for the sake of believers. They shriveled and withered and died in an excruciating death for us. And then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. And Paul can say this in 1 Corinthians He says, Death, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hell. And not only that, this shows how much Jesus loves us. Other kings want you to die for them. Other kings want you in their army to die for the nation. Our King dies for us. And this shows that we are not some peasant to him, but we are his children, that he loves us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. He offers this to us out of love. Romans, how tragic. Crowd, you've got it all wrong. You've got much bigger problems that Jesus has come to deal with. Romans, saving on the, sword, on the expects Jesus to reign in Jerusalem. But we need to raise our expectations for the scope of His kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not measured in miles. It's measured in hearts. Jesus has come not to increase taxes or to fig- figure out the political aspects of the Israelite life, or to do dem- great, great uh, democratic things. Jesus has come to reign in your heart. That's where his throne is. That's where his throne is. He comes The passage ends with Jesus coming in and coming to the temple. And he comes in like the Lord of the temple. And he comes and he inspects everything. He comes in, sees everything, and leaves. He makes a checklist and he will be back to overturn everything that's going on in that temple. He's come to the temple because the temple is where the heart of men and the presence of you, not somewhere out here, but in your heart. And the presence of God seated on the throne of your heart, does not expand borders. He expands the borders of peace and joy and love and holiness if we're going to be honest with ourselves, the biggest problems we have in life are not what Trump has done, not what Biden is going to do, not what the next president's going to do, no one out there, nothing going on in Washington, D.C. is my biggest problem. Where do my biggest problems lie? Right here. And in Jesus' love for us, He says, that's where I'm heading. I don't want some measly throne in Jerusalem. I want a throne in each and every heart of the faithful. I'm going to keep my heart. I'm going to be on the throne of my heart. Is that where you are? Do you call yourself a Christian? You come to church. You try to do all the checklists, but you know deep down Jesus isn't on your throne. He desires to be on on the throne. And you and I both know the legislation He wants to enact in our heart to expand peace and expand holiness, expand joy, all those things. We like to filibuster, don't we? What is God looking to do in your heart? Increase your generosity, increase your courage, increase your love, increase your patience. What is He trying to increase that you're filibustering now? What's He want to do in your life? What what, what can you give over to Him? And finally, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Finally, not only do we need to raise our expectations for what Jesus can do in our hearts. Nation. Are you with me? I grew up in church. 35. I've been, I was in church nine months before that. I've heard my entire life, conservative, Southern Baptist churches, we want to live in a more Christian nation. Nation. And I'm afraid what I have meant by that so often and what, what I think I've heard about that for so often is this. We need to vote the right way and if we don't get our way, we need to, we need to scream about it and people need to behave. That's what, we, that's what I took from that. Maybe wrongly, but that's what I understood and that's what I've said. Since Jesus' kingdom starts in the heart, what must we do to live in a more Christian nation? Share the Gospel with our neighbors. Do you want to live... In a better community, a more loving community, a more peaceful community? Do you? Do you want to live in a more righteous community? Do you want to live in a community where the weak and the poor are advocates of our King who is willing to sit on the throne of hearts? What will a community like Pittsburgh look like if gospel-believing churches say we're going to do all that we can do to share the good news of Jesus and to see people saved. What will, ch- what will community look like? It'll change everything. Our expectations for Jesus are never too high. Let me read this to you as we close. Ephesians three twenty and 21. This is how he says this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory Christ is willing to do in you.